0: is Hey, welcome to the 39th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissants Master by the thrilling MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms from journalism, to songwriting, to screenwriting, to novels, to romance, to comics, to whatever enters my head. And today, I'm bringing forth Joel Sherman, the New York Post's fantastic Major League Baseball columnist, as well as an insider for MLB Network. And Joel, I mean, I've watched Joel in action for a long time. He's a reporter's reporter, dogged, edgy, hard-nosed. He doesn't take any shit. So today, in honor of spring training, we bring Joel in to talk about covering the game, to about working at Clubhouse, about having Albert Bell tell you to get the fuck away from his locker. That's a true story. It's really great stuff. And it's right now on Two Riders, Slinging Yang. All right, Joel, first of all, um, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by telling you something that uh, you wouldn't know, which is kind of weird. Back when I, when I went to my first spring training, I was at Sports Illustrated and it was like maybe 1999 and I saw the New York writers. Like I remember seeing you there and seeing like Bob Clappish there and maybe Wally Matthews and Bill Madden was around. And I was ridiculously intimidated by you guys. I thought you guys were like just the biggest thugs in a good way. Like you knew what you were doing. You walked with confidence. You didn't seem intimidated by the athletes. You didn't seem intimidated by the managers. If you had a question, you walked right in and had it. And I just remember thinking, Jesus Christ, these guys are so confident in what they're doing. And I feel like a complete fraud, which I kind of was. Did I misread that or have you, are you, were you really confident in what you were doing? Were you unintimidated by the ballpark, by the clubhouse, by approaching people?
1: So I think it's a great question, Jeff. I think part of it is reality. I think, you know, like anything else, by 1999, uh, it's my, uh, I think 11th full year covering baseball, about my 15th or 16th year in the business. If by then I don't have some confidence, uh, you know, my, my, the institution that's paying me should think about getting rid of me. But the other thing I've always thought about is, and, and, and really, it's not as bad today as it was back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, you know, a clubhouse is a very testosterone-fueled place. And I do think if you don't – I think every time you don't in some way project to the people you cover that, you know, like I, ha- I believe I'm better at my job than you are at yours you know that, right. that that and i'm not going to be intimidated by doing my job just like i don't expect you to be intimidated by going up in the fifth inning of a baseball game and i think i think there is this kind of emotional hostage taking that could go on if you show the people you cover that you're intimidated or scared of this i think that you have to show them
0: you're a serious person there to do business wow that's really good i actually remember it's interesting. You're the second guy who said to me at some point, it's not as bad now as it used to be. And I, I remember when I was covering baseball, to me, there was a Holy Trinity of guys. I did not want to go up to. And it was Barry Bonds. It was Albert bell. And it was Randy Johnson. Um, and I wondering, you know, Albert bell was just known as an absolute terror when I was covering baseball. And you never knew if he was going to snap at you, if he's going to take a baseball bat and slam it over your head. Um, did you have the same confidence walking up to a guy like that as you would a, I don't know, Tony Womack?
1: So I give you a, a pretty good, I think, a pretty good Albert Bell story. So it's probably in about the same era, 1989, 1998, 1999. The Indi- uh, I'm the baseball columnist for the Post, but the Indians are pretty much kind of like the Yankees' number one foe uh, in the American League. And I believe at that time they're training in Winter Haven, and I decide to go do a story on the Indians in spring training, and it has been the first time that I had ever gone to that facility. And I park in the lot, and I don't know if you've ever been there, Jeff, but it was this kind of like sprawling place with a lot of buildings, very old-fashioned. And, like, it's clear if somebody is watching me that I get out of my car. I'm supposed to meet, I think, Mark Shapiro, who's then the general manager, say, like, 8 a.m. or 8.30 or something. It's clear that I got out and pre-cell phone, you know, you don't have the ability to reach out to a PR person and say, like, which building, whatever. And I must have looked the loss, and I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and it's Albert Bell. And he goes, (laughs) you having trouble finding something? And I'm like, yeah, I'm supposed to have a sit-down with Mark Shapiro, whatever. He goes, follow me. And I'm like, okay. And he takes me to Mark Shapiro's office. And I wow. go in, I interview Mark Shapiro, and then I'm like, hey, I got this in with Albert Bell. So now I'm doing a big story on the Indians. I'll do what no reporter ever does. I'm going to go chat up with Albert Bell. And I go to uh, the clubhouse, and I walk up to Albert Bell. And I guess this would be a good moment, Jeff, because I didn't ask you, is it okay to curse on your show? Yeah, of
0: course. Of course. Okay. Of
1: course. So I go to Albert Bell and I go, hey, you got a minute? And he stares at me literally as if we've never met and I have just clubbed one of his children. Okay. And he goes, get the fuck away from my locker. And I'm like, like, you know, you have that moment. Can he be, is this a playful thing where he's playing Albert Bell for a second? And I'm like what? And he goes, repeats what he has just said. And that was my one and only time trying to interview him. But it kind of showed like this dichotomy of the personality. Like on one hand, he had helped me find somebody and I'm thinking, oh, great. Like here, here we go. And then that happened. And, um, you know, as far as interviewing people, I'm never really intimidated, but one of the things I have tried to do over the years is have my own ground rules about how I approach players. You know, the blessing of leaving the beat is you can kind of talk to who you want to talk to, as opposed to feeling compelled that you have to have relationships with 25 guys and six coaches and a manager and a a general manager. So you could kind of seek out people you know are going to be like, I don't want to have the contentious thing just to prove that I could have it. I'd rather execute a column well And so I want to interview people who will be helpful. Now, sometimes that means going up, like Randy Johnson played with the Yankees. We had a terrible relationship. But when I needed Randy Johnson, I went up to Randy Johnson because that's part of the deal. And I think that's another moment where, you know, like, so, you know, my ground rules is I try to get a guy alone. You know, I don't want to ever work in a group with other reporters. I try, if at all possible, to go up to a guy when there's not teammates around them. Because I always feel like when there's teammates around, he's going to play to them by either trying to be intimidating or not give full answers because he's afraid that his team will be like, what the hell did you help that guy for kind of thing. I never walk up to it. And this is less of a problem, again, in 2018 than it used to be. But, like, I never want a guy semi-clothed or whatever. I always wait for a guy to get into whatever, you know, if it's before practice, get into your warm-up stuff. If it's after Get into your, you know, your regular clothes. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like there's ways to approach people to put them in a greater comfort zone where they're more likely to be able to kind of participate in the, the, you know, what you ultimately want in this, Jeff, and you know this. You're an excellent reporter. You want it to become a conversation. You know, you don't want them to feel like they're being interviewed. You're there to, again, execute. In my case, usually a column. So I want the person to be like, hey, let's have a conversation about this X thing that I want to do and. Maybe we'll end up on Y of Z because you'll take me someplace interesting. So I don't know. That's the way I always approach it.
0: Has it at all changed your dynamic as a reporter? Like when you started, you were the age of the players. Now you are the age of the managers and GMs. Does that change the dynamic or the approach at all when you were talking to players? Absolutely. Uh, you know, my
1: first year on the beat, I had just turned 25 and back then in the late eighties, uh, you know, the baseball beat was a prized beat and people stayed on it forever. And I think my first year at 25, not only was I the youngest regular beat guy in the country, but I think it was like potentially by a couple of years, um, right. to other, to other people. And, you know, I was the player's age, which, you know, I might have, you know, some of the same sensibility. You know, you're trying to make connection. Like, is that connection, hey, music, is it movies, is it something culturally? I'm much more likely to have it if I'm 25 and you're 25. I think the way I have it now with people is, uh, you know, you just want to show your passion and your seriousness and that our common avenue is baseball. Ultimately, my father taught me baseball and he, uh, he was clearly – 20-plus years older than me, and that stayed our commonality through the years. And so now I'm trying to connect with somebody who plays the game, who usually has some strong passion for the game, by showing, hopefully, I'm a serious thinker who has passion about your game, and I'm here to talk about this.
0: So would it be a mistake for you to go up to, I don't know, the shortstop for the Pirates, the 20-year-old shortstop for the Pirates, and try talking about Kendrick Lamar? Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean unless unless we somehow got there and we right. both I mean, you know, when we both had some passion for it, I, I, I think you shouldn't bullshit with players. You know, like, like like ultimately I think of it as we're both businessmen and we need to execute business and what's the best way to execute business? And I wouldn't come into your CPA office as a you know, like a fellow CPA or a lawyer or something and just try to guess at some level of commonality. Uh you know, nice. I I we'll talk and if there's some commonality, we'll get there. The one thing I could assure that there's commonality on is baseball. And uh look, I, I and and I now have an advantage that I didn't have most of my career. I'm regularly on TV on the MLB network and the MLB network is on in clubhouses a lot and the if the name and is not totally familiar with the player I haven't met, there is now some 20%, 25% chance, or maybe even greater than that, that they've seen my face. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, it gives you another level of something to begin a conversation.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to say, if you go into a clubhouse, I mean, I'll just say, if you go to the Seattle Mariners clubhouse, and you are just Joel Sherman from the New York Post. The odds are the the whatever the rookie outfielder from you know shreveport has never seen the new york post has never read anything you've written um does it does that matter now, I, the, obviously the tv is a huge advantage doesn't matter whether they read your work are familiar with your byline does that give an edge does it do they even care
1: uh again i think that's a really interesting avenue i think that there are some people who probably care. There are some guys who, you know, if you go up in the right way professionally, introduce yourself, explain why you want to talk. I think if you're from, you know, Bob's blog or the New York Post or the MLB network, they'll speak to you. And I do believe that's still the vast majority of players. They, there's some recognition and maybe this is silly, but, but I, I, I actually think there's better. Um, gatekeeping of who gets a press credential and who doesn't. Then in the past, and so like I, I think there's this general thing of if I'm coming up to you and I'm wearing a credential, you probably have some feeling like I've passed some barrier to get in here, and uh, the player will work with you. That being said, the 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 network thing, the face recognition, and what I would generally call the fa- fake fake. Uh, uh, gravitas that they associate with it, but fortunately, sometimes they do is, you know, gives you some, 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 some avenue that maybe you don't get otherwise.
0: Yeah. Well, I have to say, I, uh, I've written a bunch of books and it's only when my mom sees me on TV that she considers me anything but a success. It's weird how there's a magic to that. Is there not? There's something about seeing someone on TV that works as a business card in ways print does not.
1: So you use the word "magic," and so I guess because it's my life, I'm glad the magic exists. But if I could snap my fingers and it didn't exist, I wish it wouldn't exist. I kind of think it's pathetic. Uh, you know, like as somebody who who does a hundred days a year on TV and writes two or three times that number of columns a year, I can't tell you how much more difficult it is. To execute a well-written 700, 750 word column, especially on deadline, than to do an hour of television. Now that's for me. Maybe other people find the TV intimidating, whatever. And yet I could write a thousand great columns or do five minutes of TV and people will be like, wow, I saw you on TV. And I'm like, big, big deal. The thing I did on TV was, was, was like, was like fluff. It was, you know, it wasn't. The, the column, I'm worrying about the transition between the 19th and the 20th paragraph. You know, the, the, the TV, it's it, like, I'm not saying we, there's not times we elevate it. And I do think there's a general attempt at the network always, I'm always admired that the producers are collaborative and it's like, what would make this the best segment? You know, there is an attempt to do it well. But I, I mean, for me, writing the column is, takes a lot more craft than doing television and, You know, I mean, I I tell you a hysterical story. It happened a couple of weeks ago. I was with a friend. We went to a party. Then we met another group of friends at a bar in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. And it was a karaoke place, though. at least that night it was. And there was a guy so drunk, he went up to a friend of mine, and he was trying to pickpocket him. I mean, the guy could hardly stand, and he's trying to pickpocket a friend of mine. And there's about to be in this bar kind of this all-out brawl, and my friends involved And it's not a place I want to be in my mid fifties, but my friends involved, and I'm about to be in a fight in a bar in Hell's Kitchen. And at the last second, one of the drunk guys' friends steps in. He goes, "Holy cow, you're Joel Sherman!" And I go, (laughs) "Yeah." "Yeah." And pretty soon we're all drinking with each other, and that's because they saw me on TV. And like, like so on that, you know, I'm glad I didn't get into a bar fight, but it's like ridiculous the power it gives you. Like, it almost doesn't matter. Are you good on TV or bad on TV? It's just that you are on TV. And I find that kind of ludicrous.
0: Yeah. It's a lot. It's also funny how you would have never been referred to as quote unquote the talent until you were on TV. Meanwhile, your talent is actually the writing. I mean, that's the, the, to me, the talent is in the written word more than, uh, I mean, the times I've been on TV, it's not, I wouldn't call it the talent. You're just talking.
1: Yeah. And, 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 Uh, You know, not not to kind of, like, be too overly dramatic here. I've always tried to make it, Jeff. My My dad was a truck driver for over 45 years. And he was kind of a low-maintenance, high-performance guy. And he's the hardest working person I've ever seen. And I do whatever it is, even if it's TV. I, like, you know, where they kind of refer to you as the talent, I always, like, look around and go, like, The makeup people are working harder than I am, you know, the camera operators, they're working harder than like I have real admiration for work, you know, because I saw how hard my dad worked, you know, to kind of give us anything. And so I I, I, like so when they refer to you as talent, I feel so even even after this many years of doing it, 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 if you want to make my skin crawl at work, you can use the word.
0: Before we continue, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm sitting here with my son Emmett, who received a package two days ago. Em, what was in it?
1: The greatest thing ever. Seriously? Yes.
0: Was it $100 million in large bills?
1: Dad, don't be ridiculous.
0: Was it the new Hall & box set?
1: Dad, seriously. Well, what was it? It was my brand new Stitch Greg Fields number 99 Los Angeles Express jersey from 503 Sports.
0: Whoa, that's amazing. The kid's right. Why? Because 503 Sports is all about throwback. We're talking USFL. We're talking World Football League. We're talking XFL, Minor League Baseball, Minor League Hockey, Old School Portland State. Or, put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Greg Fields Los Angeles Express jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Emma Perlman and go to 503sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. I love your Twitter feed and I love I've spring training has been a, I feel like you're a, you've been on fire and you wrote something um you wrote something the other day spring games begin today so lots of top young prospects will get exposure they'll be referred to as quote highly touted prospects but touted means highly touted can you be touted more than touted no touted is enough which is great um do you love spring training do you hate spring training when it's coming close are you like yes I'm going to Tampa. Or are you like, uh? I'm going to Tampa. So, uh, what what
1: I hate the most is adverbs like "highly," uh, because I uh-huh. think they're kind of like the the empty words of frauds. Uh right. Anybody who uses the word "absolutely," I always when that's the word. Anytime I hear the word "absolutely," I really study the person and what they just said, because usually the person <laughs> on the other end of that word is going to be a fraud. Uh, yeah. The the, uh, as for spring training, um, I, you know, I have, I have 13 year old twin boys, Jeff, and, uh, it, it, you know, they're getting up to the age where they're on their own a little more, but I, I, I go, I come home, I go, I come home, but I do miss, like, like the spring training now is different than it was 14 years ago before I had kids and anytime before that because, you know, you're going away and, you're not leaving anybody who's changing on a daily basis behind. And now I'm leaving two kids who are changing constantly. And I come home and I'm like, I feel like I miss things. So like there's a personal element to it that makes it a little tougher to go away. That being said, you know, there's something I I like the rhythm of baseball, whether it's, so I get into the rhythm, there's a spring training rhythm, there's a regular season rhythm, there's a post-season rhythm, there's a GM meetings rhythm, there's a winter meetings rhythm. And, you know, whatever the event is, as you kind of get into that rhythm, it feels familiar and comfortable. And the question is, can you play, can you play some jazz? Can you take whatever's going on this year? It feels familiar, but it's still interesting. It's new. It challenges you, what What are you going to do with the new stuff, the new guys, the new, you know, the front offices keep me kind of like interested constantly now in the areas they plumb that, you know, I came up in an era in the 80s with, you know, rub some dirt on it and go play 162 games. And now I got, you know, MIT guys talking to me about, you know, brain formation and sleep patterns. So
0: it, right. the world has changed. But so how do you approach, so how do you approach spring? Like, what is your, I read a quote from you, uh, it wasn't that long ago. It, um, you said, I like the idea of trying to find out something and st- and starting out the day with nothing and getting something. I like writing my column. I think I have a lot of opinions with the place to put them. I like writing something poignant and entertaining. Like with spring training, do you, are you literally, do you wake up at six in the morning, go to the park with no idea what you're going to write about? Do you, you go with a sort of thought process in mind? How are you approaching the day-to-day of spring? So that first rule
1: has been the rule my entire career, which is don't leave any place without knowing something that you didn't know before. Because the discipline Mm -hmm. to me of beginning the day and saying, I will not end my day of work without knowing something I didn't know the day before. Now, sometimes that ends up being 10 things and sometimes it ends up being a small nugget or a gigantic story. But I think that the kind of discipline, the endless search for it, allows you, uh, you know, allows you to be exploratory and fall into things. And, you know, the key word in my life and in my career is relentless. I like that whole concept of not ever giving into anything and just being relentless about it. So there's yeah. that always remains. Uh, I begin almost every day with some general idea of I'd like to execute X. And but you but but you know if the job is going to remain interesting and uh get you out of bed in the morning and you haven't really changed your job all that much in 3 decades as i haven't you better stay loose so that you can be surprised and it, and entertain yourself and and motivated to ask more questions and motivated to kind of like go down all the pathways that 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 new information can take you down. So I never want to become so tied up by a single concept going in that that I won't do something else. The the last I'm as I'm talking to you, I'm back in the New York area for one of those weeks, because I don't want to be away from my kids too much. But I just did 10 days in Yankee camp. And I literally had completed columns on I want to say the last two days there are I think it was the last two days there. And then some kind of like news happened. And, you know, like I tore up 750 word columns and wrote brand new columns because you want to stay relevant. Uh, like to me, always tie it to news if you can or, and, and, and one of the things that being at the network and being more global in general has allowed is I could take news that impacts the, Arizona Diamondbacks, the San Diego Padres, the Seattle Mariners, and say, here's the commonality. Like when I'm writing for the New York Post, here's something to consider that's just happened someplace else that really impacts the Mets and or the Yankees and why you should care about it, which is one of my favorite right. things to do is to take the global and make it local.
0: See, I thought, I, I read a column you did uh, somewhat recently. It was, uh, what can be learned from, uh, John Carlos Stanton's first day and a million people. Every year, there's some big guy coming to camp and, you know, many times over with the Yankees, you know, from Giambi to Matsui. So there's always a new guy coming to camp. And I thought, how can he possibly approach this uniquely? And you basically compared it to the time David Cohn was acquired in July of 1995. And I thought what you did really interesting there is you used, like, there's a reason experience matters. You know, there's a reason being there for other events matters. And I felt like your ability to tie it to something that happened 23 years earlier sort of was unique and made it kind of special. And I wonder, like, um, do you, do you approach these things with the historical context usually in mind? What does it mean historically? What does it mean to the annals of the Yankees or the match or whoever you're writing about?
1: So I guess the answer to that in broadly is yes, but I always think one of the most important things you have to do as a beat writer, a columnist, whatever you're doing, is say, what is your tool belt? You know, what what, what are you good at? Uh, are you good at, you know, I admire people historically who can be very witty, funny in in print. You know, like Scott Osler used to be able to make me laugh or, or Norman Chad Mm -hmm. used to be able to make me laugh. Like, like, is that in your tool belt? If it's not, it's going to read tortured and terrible. So like for me, I've been around for 30 years. And in the case, in that case, I had seen either on the seven years I was on the Yankee beat or the 20 odd years since I became a columnist, every big guy come in. And I started to think about, like, who succeeded and who failed, who came in, and, like, the two guys who kind of, like, right from the outset handled it well were David Cohn and Hideki Matsui, and I thought right away, you know what they had in common? Cohn had played for the crazy Mets. You wrote a book about how crazy it was, right? Uh, mm-hmm. th- that team, though he wasn't on the 86 team. I think he joined the no, 87. No, he came the next year, but right. Yeah, but they were as cra- or even crazier probably as time went by. So he knew how expectations and zaniness and the media and everything worked. And the other guy was Hideki Matsui, who essentially was playing for the Yankees of Japan and was like the biggest person, uh, you know, personality in the country. And like, so both guys came in and handled it, but I had watched it, Wilt Randy Johnson, it knocked Roger Clemens for a loop. It locked Alex Rodriguez for a loop. You know, like a lot, the blessing of, one of the blessings of being around the Yankees is pretty much every big player will eventually come through, uh, you know, even if it's at the end of the career, like Ichiro Suzuki. And so, I don't know, like it's in my tool belt that I I, I know the history and I kind of like if history can inform us about anything. So yes, it's one of the things I think about, but I I like to think there's other kind of tools in that belt.
0: Right. I just think there's a, there's a, there's a tendency right now for a lot of publications, um, to hire the 23 year old straight out of Syracuse instead of the Joel Sherman, the Bob Clapish, the, you know, Bill Madden, whoever, um, because they can save the money. But I feel like the 23 year old knows nothing about David Cohen arriving and doesn't have the, that does, just doesn't have the history to be able to write with authority. And I think that ability to write with authority is one of your easily one of your, your great strengths. And the only reason, I mean, you weren't able to write with authority when you were 25 years old. Correct. And and one of the
1: things I'll say is, so I think I mentioned earlier when we were talking, I have real respect for the Beat guys. The Beat has changed dramatically since I was on the Beat, but I've always had. they they They're asked to be there the most, to do the most kind of, you know, grind, dog work. And so, like, if Beat guys are working and they go right, I almost always go left. I don't want to get in their way. Like, they're going to do their thing. I should be able to execute what I want to execute. And again, I desperately want to get guys alone. I want to have that moment alone with a guy to do whatever. And when people try to poach in on an alone interview, one of the things I'll often say to them is, there's got to be an advantage to be me. Like, I've been around, I've put in thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. Like, I have a relationship with this person. Like, there has to be an advantage where you can't just poach in on my interview. If you want this guy waited, I wait out the beat guys to finish. You've got to wait me out. Otherwise, what's the advantage to being me? And there are, with, with, there are, and by me, I'm talking about the universal me, like the people you're talking about. There's got to be some advantage to beat Ken Rosenthal and John Heyman and, you know, uh, Uh, you know, Jeff Passon and Tim Brown and people who have been around a long time and have legitimate relationships and have a a storage room, an index of knowledge on a variety of things, because if there's not an advantage, and there is an advantage to being us, and I think that these publications that are just thinking anybody can do this, well, if anybody could do it, then anybody would do it, and that's not the way it should be.
0: What do you do when you have a one-on-one with someone? I don't, you know, you're standing there and you're talking with whoever, and the TV reporter just pulls up, shoves his mic in. What do you do? Uh,
1: well, I try to say, hey, you know, like I arranged this, or can you wait a few minutes? And Jeff, you're probably around me enough. You know my rep a little bit. You know, again, without kind of taking it too too fine, I I could be a dick. When the time comes to be a dick and you know, like if, if a TV person won't move off my interview, I usually say to them, Hey, just so you know, when you go live, I'm going to go stand in the middle of your interview.
0: That's awesome. And have you done that? Yeah. Have you ever yeah. done that?
1: Yeah. Have I ever had to do it? No, usually when you do it, they stop doing it because like, like you're trying to get them to understand that this is your one on one with a camera up. Just you don't have a camera up. Like this is my right. exclusive time with him. I would not step in the middle of a of a live interview. This is a live interview and you're being unprofessional.
0: Right. My favorite my favorite is when you're interviewing someone and they're telling you about like the death of their grandma from cancer and Bob, you know, smooth hair from whatever TV station shoves in the mic to ask like what were the keys to the fourth inning rally. That right. never is there a, a moment when I want to murder someone more than at that moment. Yeah.
1: Do you? So, I mean, I know you're asking me the questions, but I I, I kind of believe this. I wonder if you believe it. I do believe certain people kind of give off the wall of this is not a good time for you to come in. here. Like and I'm talking about oh, the yeah. interviewer. And I'd like to believe that I that there's something you're, you know, at least personally, I'm giving off to suggest, like, this isn't the moment to ask the fourth inning question you want. Wait me out. Now, some of that, again, is reputation, you know, because I'm doing, a, you know, 80% of my work in New York. And so the people in New York know who I am. And I'm like, I'm probably not just going to accept you trying to crawl in on my interview.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's a difference. So again, I remember being in clubhouses and, you know, with the Yankees or New York teams. And I'm a guy from suburban Mayo Pack, New York. And you're a guy from Brooklyn. And I feel like you gave off something that I wish I had. And I didn't have, which is sort of like, don't fuck with me. I'm doing this interview. And I think that's a very powerful thing. I think it's a really good thing. And I honestly think it comes in a way from upbringing and, and I never fully had that, but I aspired to have it. So I actually, I give you credit for that one. It's pretty impressive.
1: Well, I'll give it, I grew up in a project house in Brooklyn, so I knew there would be a benefit somehow. So to, to all of that.
0: Right. (laughs) Uh, Um, let me ask you a question. You, um, so your first year covering the Yankees, you, you came in on May 1989. So 1990 was your first full year and it was the, uh, 67 and 95 Yankees. Bucky Dent managed, then Stum Merrill managed. Uh, Gene Michael was the GM. Uh, you had Mattingly at first, Steve Sachs at second, the outfielders, Roberto Kelly, Jesse Barfield and, uh, <laughs> Oscar Zokar. What do you remember from being a very young Yankee beat writer?
1: Uh, I I learned so much, and I tell people, people are like, so I covered the Yankees as a beat from eight, starting in May of 89. So from those seven seasons, 89 through 95. So literally the last game I covered as a beat guy, Ken Griffey slides into home plate, the Mariners advance, Buck Walter's last wow. day on the job, Don Mattingly done. That's my last day as, uh, that's my last game. It wasn't my last day, but my last game right. as a beat writer in 95. Um. And people are like, wow, they only made the playoffs that last year, because in 94, there was a the strike when they had the best record in the AL. And I'm like, like, were you disappointed? And I'm like, I wouldn't change a thing. I learned so much more covering a bad team than I ever would have covering a good team, because the human nature of rats jumping a ship happens on a bad team. And so I learned a lot about how not to do things and... How, and, and seeing the dignity and professionalism of people carrying on well when things are not going well. Um, and, uh, so, so there was so much I learned. And, you know, I put, I I wrote a book in 2006 about the kind of like the, how the birth, 10 years after the 96 championship on like the birth for dynasty. But so much of that was infused with the history I knew pre 96. And I tell a story in the book, and it really stands out to me, and, you know, rest his soul, because he died, um, this year, Gene Michael. Um, when Stick Michael took over in, uh, late August of 90, it was, uh, George Steinbrenner was beginning what was supposed to be a lifetime ban, but it turned out to be a two and a half year ban, but, but Stick was in charge, and, You know, it's one of those things you like to believe that people take you into their world a little bit because they see you are curious and you are interested. And, you know, he he's one of the guys through the years I always thought was like like really kind of you're hoping to earn your Ph.D. in this and he helps you in study hall do it. And he brought me into his office and he goes, I want you to see this. And he's running his finger down a list of numbers. You know, it's like Alvaro Espinosa, 270-something, Mel Hall, whatever, also low number, Bob Guerin, 260-whatever, Oscar Zokar. And it was the first time anybody had really opened the door into on-base percentage for me. I had never – you know, it's 1990. It's batting average home runs and RBIs, you know, unless you were already a devotee of Bill James. And, you know, Bill James was not a widely read guy in 1990. And Stick said to me, we make the innings too easy for the opposing pitcher. There's too many five or six or seven pitch innings. We need guys who turn every at bat into a little bit of a real war, a battle. And he began the slow transition from that moment of bringing in guys, now guys who didn't make it over the, the hill to the championship teams like Mike Gallego and Mike Stanley, but they began to set the tenor of how the Yankees would play on really both sides of the ball, but especially their at bats. And then he, tr- you know, traded for Paul O'Neill a couple of year- years into it, who did make it over the hill. And there was this slow accumulation of people who turned every at bat into these long at bats. You know, George Steinbrenner used to tell him all the time to trade Bernie Williams and he wouldn't do it. And one of the reasons was, is he loved how Bernie was studious and had long at bats and thought it would, there would be a payoff in the end. And so that's just one of the things that really stands out to me about kind of like that early moment on the beat, seeing how somebody's mind works and then seeing the results of kind of a little bit of baseball genius playing out. What was it like covering Steinbrenner? So without getting myself too much into the quicksand with an anvil here, uh, there's a lot of Steinbrenner Trump comparisons that I think are apt. You know, the very, uh, the very domineering father who they'll never live up to, uh, coming of age in the tabloid era in New York in the 70s, kind of what m- getting the front page or page six in my paper in the New York Post meant. You could find connections with people like Roy Cohn for both of them. The ability to kind of like spin a story to their benefit, no matter if it happened to be true or not uh the fa- pitting uh people in the front office against each other to kind of like get gossip on other people and always make yourself look good and you know like i i think one of the things that i do try to keep alive a little bit is the yes network and time have done a lot to turn george steinbrenner into a kindly old grandfather and i could tell you i was there he was not a kindly old grandfather you know he was he was ruthless, and there was probably some of, some of that ruthlessness led to a kind of frenzied work pace that helped the Yankees win a lot. But as somebody who was there when they were losing, and I think earlier you mentioned the 1990 team, and like the 1990 team, you know, without with testing my brain a little, like had like their worst record in like 75 or 76 years when it happened. There was a lot of bad baseball played for the middle chunk of George Steinbrenner's ownership. And it was only when he was, quote unquote, suspended, because I don't ever think he really ever went too far away, but he couldn't quite have his fingerprints on the team in the way he used to. And slowly, Stick Michael and Buck Showalter began to integrate a good group of young players that would become literally their core four and more into it. Did they win? And, you know, Steinbrenner is given great credit for a bunch of stuff. And he's the owner. Ultimately, he was there. I think they won six championships or seven championships during his ownership and that's a reality. But the this idea of George of somehow being this benign or friendly or it was all tongue in cheek, all the firing and hiring I, that is not reality to how it all actually went down.
0: Do you feel like you have to be a um, a skeptic to be it like I, I always think like I remember after Steinbrenner died, just as an example, there was a lot of George is looking down on us today. You know, there's always that when a ball player dies or an owner dies, so-and-so is looking down on us and blah, blah, blah. And we're doing it for the, you know, for the troops and America. And do you have to, when you're a baseball writer or a sports writer, do you sort of have to dig past the bullshit and get raw? Is there is there a need to do that? I don't even know if I'm stating that correctly, but you probably know what I mean. So, yeah, I think that the
1: best people do it. I remember something that was very influential to me. My first year, the end of my first year on the beat, Billy Martin died. And Steve Jacobson, who had, was at Newsday and was there for a long time, he had covered the Mantle, Maris, Ralph Houck, Yankees of the sixties, the seventies, and he had become a columnist. He wrote, you know, there was this attempt when Billy Martin died, you know, like misunderstood genius. What a man. And Steve Jacobson wrote, you know, dying d- doesn't make you a saint. And Billy Martin was no saint. And I admired the balls it took, because I knew he, and and this is pre-internet, if you write that column now, the amount of shit that blows on you is tremendous. But it was with me the day Steinbrenner died, and I gave him his due, but I refused to write the St. George column the day he died. And I'd like to believe I played it as forthright as possible. I do feel you whether your readership likes it or not, and most of the readership gets upset if you write something that they don't favor, which is usually that you know, something against the team they like. Uh but I, I feel that's not what you're there for. I think the internet has made us made too many cowards who don't want to be unpopular on Twitter or whatever, and they, they pull punches. And to me, this is not a job for punch pulling. You write what you know, what you can prove. And if you're a columnist, what you strongly believe and hopefully have reported and observed long enough to kind of be able to back up.
0: I agree. That's actually a really interesting point because, um, you know, Billy Graham died last week and a couple of people wrote columns saying, if you look at Billy Graham's life, you know, he may not be floating on a cloud in heaven right now. And the backlash to that was fierce. And I do think, I do think you're right. I think people are hesitant to press the send button. Uh, for certain columns because the backlash they're going to get. And do you, does it not bother you? Are you able to completely, I don't give a shit what you say about me. Say what you want on Twitter. I don't care. Do you have that a hundred percent or do you still get somewhat ever rattled or think to yourself, uh, this is not going to go so well for me? So I think it's a lie to say
1: you're never a hundred, that you're a hundred percent bulletproof to it all, Jeff. Uh, and I always give like, I'm not one of these people who says like ever like, Oh, the players are too sensitive. Of course they're sensitive. You know, you're writing negative stuff about them. It's like always funny when I'll hear somebody in my in my world, in a reporting world, say, oh, that guy's too sensitive. And I was like, somebody said they didn't like your column on Twitter two weeks ago and you acted like a four-year-old with a rattle. <laughs> you know, like 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 do you not own a mirror any place? That being said, what I try to remember, I try to remember three things. Number one, my job is to do what I said before, which is to be kind of like within my strengths, you know, like you're reporting, do you get everything right? I Nobody's perfect, but I've never written a word that I didn't believe was right at the time I wrote it. You know, you're trying your best to get it perfect. That's the job. You have to do that, right? So, and when it comes to, you know, Twitter has become so powerful in our business because, you know, it's where you break stories and where you're following news in real time, etc. And I know people who are addicted to the, um, you know, the, the, the responses on it. And I try to look at it like if, I, if at all possible, I save it for like one day a week to like go through things. It lets some time pass. But even if I read it in real time, what I try to remember is I don't know what this represents. In other words, like the, the only two things I know for sure about the person who sent it to me is they have free time and anger. And but beyond the free time and anger, I don't know if they're a smart person or a dumb person, if they're a good person or a bad person, if they represent themselves or 60 percent of the people or 5 percent or 20 percent. So what am I going to overreact to? I don't know what they represent beyond anger and time. And so I I I, I try to. And, and, and then lastly, the thing I remember is I'm a critical columnist. And if I dish it out and I can't take it, shame on me.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a final question here. Uh, I recently got in a pretty heated debate on social media, I regret to say, um, about the role of journalists and fans. And it was in response, there was a writer for uh, Bleacher Report who had attended, uh, I think he went to Ohio- uh, Arizona State. And he posts on Instagram all these photos of him, like, Arizona State, Herm Edwards is the football coach there. That's my guy and blah, 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 blah. And there was another writer for, uh, for, uh, Bleacher Report also who, um, she's a big Seahawks fan and, you know, go Seahawks and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and also, you know, posted, thank Nike for the free Seahawks sweatshirt, right? Stuff like that. And their argument is basically, look, this is a different age of journalism. It's not what it used to be. Um, I can root for. The Seahawks and still be unbiased about the Super Bowl. Um, I went to Arizona State, so it's okay for me to root for Arizona State. That's my alma mater. I struggle with this stuff in a major way, but maybe I'm a, maybe I'm just a stodgy old piece of shit. Um, what says Joel Sherman? Well, then let's elevate the stodgy pieces of shit.
1: Uh, you know, look, I don't know that there's a blanket statement. I I don't have a much better friend. In the world or admiration for anyone in our business than Mike Vaccaro, who's the uh, main columnist, New York Post. And Mike doesn't hide, for example, like he's a huge New York Met fan. That being said, I think you'd be hard pressed to find when it's time to be critical, anyone who, because he knows the history so well. And I think he's such a talented writer, the ability to kind of put them up and hit the bullseye well. So there are people I think who have gifts that can remain fans, and yet, you know, when the time comes to throw the punch, they couldn't throw the punch. That being said, like, like for example, and I, I can never, there is a group of people, and it's, again, why I don't pay, You mentioned before, like, do I pay attention to my emails, Twitter, stuff like that? Like, half the people say I'm a Met fan, and half the people say I'm a Yankee fan. And I'll tell you the truth. I grew up a Cincinnati Red fan because, number one, My brother, we grew up in Brooklyn, but my brother, older brother, liked the St. Louis Cardinals. So right away, I wanted to like a team that wasn't New York so I could be like my brother. And I watched the Reds play, and I loved Pete Rose, how he played. You know, you're thinking, oh, if I could play like that, maybe even I could play. You know, if you just play your hardest all the time. And so Pete Rose was my number one guy. And second but a distant second was Joe Morgan. And then I became a professional, and I can't tell you that I met two more distasteful people than Pete Rose and Joe Morgan. So, like, whatever fandom I might have had, and certainly by the time I was covering baseball, I wasn't that interested in the Cincinnati Reds anymore. But I, I, I don't care who wins any of the games, Uh, you know, uh, partially because of that. And then I kind of always say, like, I root for my life. Like, the day a player gives a shit if I win a Pulitzer, I'll give a shit if he wins a game. You know, like, 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 I'm going to root for me. And so I go in, and what I want it to be is, like, I'd like a nice, paced, quick game with as much compelling stuff in it as possible. Because I want to write informative, dramatic, interesting, entertaining stuff. And, you know, like, I can't control the outcome of the game. And it always puts you in the bizarre situation. Because I only have a job because people have no perspective. You know, like, fans are fanatical. If they didn't care as much as they care, what would I, you know, I'd have to do something else. And so on one hand, those are the people who give me, keep me in business. And on the other hand, I don't think they'll ever truly understand that I just don't
0: give a shit what the final score of the game is and who has more runs. Right. In the same way. Um, let me ask you a final, final, final question. November 3rd, 1992, the New York Yankees trade Roberto Kelly um, to the Cincinnati Reds for Paul O'Neill. Um, at the time this happened, I remember thinking Yankees are in Roberto Kelly. How do you trade Roberto Kelly? Um, you were covering the team. Did you think it was wise at the time? I
1: didn't. And so it's a good education point because, you know, like, like uh, like a lot of things that happen in real time, you end up being wrong about. I thought that there was an upside that had not been a, a, a tapped yet by Kelly. And yet, Stick Michael, who I mentioned before, like a lot of the, the Roberto Kelly thing was he didn't think he had the aptitude to do better than what he was already. And he felt there was only diminishing returns ahead. He felt that Bernie Williams needed to play center field and having Kelly around as a veteran who would, might mope into left or right field was not something he wanted. He wanted there to be no, nothing in front of Bernie Williams to play. And so he needed to trade Kelly. He felt that he knew Lou Pinella well enough and he felt that Lou Pinella had chopped down, uh, O'Neill because O'Neill wouldn't do what he wanted to do, which was be a big time power hitter. I remember Stick felt the team wasn't lefty enough, and I know Stick felt the team wasn't disciplined enough at the plate. And he thought that O'Neill was both a lefty power guy and a guy who could be disciplined. And it turned out he was right. And there was just like like I almost is, is forgive me I always forget is it is the Malcolm Gladwell book about ten thousand hours is a tipping point is that yeah tipping point. Is the, the tipping point yeah and I always thought that Stick Michael was the example of tipping point that he had spent. 10,000 hours times a multiple of that, you know, three, four, five times observing baseball and really observing it that he was the kind of guy who could watch things and see and project like everyone who's called a scout really can't scout like, you know, like it's like everybody who's called the beat writer probably really shouldn't be a beat writer. But stick Michael was the guy who was the Malcolm Gladwell tipping point guy for me. He could he could watch, and if he watched long enough, he could tell you things about people and players and likelihoods that came from this kind of computer-generated instinct from the 10,000 hours, and that trade was made off of his 10,000 hours.
0: He was also a ridiculously nice human being, I got to say.
1: Yes, he was, you know, his death this year, you know, I wrote about that in the paper and talked about it on the air. Um it, it you know, we began this interview where we were talking about like your ability to navigate the people in your life. And that was a guy who, you know, I think if you showed interest, he met it and went beyond it. And he he falls into that group with Buckshow Walter, Bobby Valentine, some other people who really saw interest saw that I was interested and wanted to learn. And went beyond the call of duty to like get granular and explain how kind of the wheel worked a little. And if there's any success, like, you know, in my ability to convey information, a lot of it is owed to people like that who taught me how to watch the game and what to appreciate and, you know, what, what they valued and, and made me think about the game in a certain kind of way. And, and I'll be forever in the debt
0: of, of someone like Gene Michael. Well, Joe, I appreciate your time a whole lot. I, uh, I, I could talk to you for seven hours about about baseball and covering baseball. Um, I consider you one of the true greats of the profession, and uh, seriously, I really, I really do appreciate it.
1: Well, you couldn't have been kinder on this, Jeff. I truly appreciate it, and there's always part two, right?
0: I want to thank today's guest, Joel Sherman, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Joel on Twitter at JoelSherman1 and read his stuff in the New York Post. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at www.503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on iTunes and reviews are always appreciated. Music is from the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.